0: morning. I'm Chris Williams and this is Fordham Conversations. We often think of the afterlife in terms of heaven and hell. What about the afterlife on earth? This week we'll be talking about how life after death can happen all around us here on earth. First I spoke with Anthony Bellov, a volunteer at the Merchant's House Museum in downtown Manhattan. He tells us about the family who lived there in the late 19th century and how some people believe they never left.
1: Well the Merchant's House Museum is the only Intact nineteenth century residential building to survive in Manhattan. Uh, it was built in eighteen thirty two The family who lived there uh, for the bulk of the time moved in in eighteen thirty five The youngest daughter, Gertrude, who we'll be talking about some more, uh, died in nineteen thirty three so you've got a span of about a century there, and when the young daughter the youngest daughter Gertrude, died. She left behind the family's possessions, their furnishings, their clothing, their personal possessions. If the Treadwells came back today, and some people say they've never left, uh, they would recognize the house from having been there before.
0: So how long has the house been a museum?
1: The the house was threatened with demolition or serious alteration in 1933 when Gertrude died. And luckily, a uh, distant cousin by the name of George Chapman heard uh... what was threatening the house and realized that something really priceless and and irreplaceable was about to be lost and so he rushed over there and he bought the house he uh... he bought up the mortgages this was during the great depression and he bought the house he had the mortgages forgiven he basically pulled um... the collection of gowns out of the hands of the rag pickers who were in the house and uh... he began putting things to right the house hadn't been repaired for many years And in three years' time, he was able to install facilities like public restrooms and that sort of thing, and heat. And the museum opened to the public in 1936. So we've been open more than 75 years at this point.
0: So the museum has a reputation as being one of the most haunted places in Manhattan.
1: Well, I have to correct you. First of all, it has a reputation as being the most haunted house in Manhattan, and that was the moniker given it by the New York Times. Uh, The very first occurrence we have on record literally uh, took place two months after Gertrude passed away. She died in uh, August of 1933, and that October, some kids were out playing in front of the house. In those days, East 4th Street was the middle of a uh, uh, tenement district, and it was all working class and poor families with lots of kids and no cars on the streets yet, not that time. And kids were out playing in front of the house, and suddenly the front door of the house flew open, and a petite elderly woman in a long dress was seen to rush out onto the stoop and waving her arms wildly to chase the children away so they wouldn't play in front of the house. And um, because this was a neighborhood, a lot of people saw it happen, and they recognized this figure as being Gertrude, who was dead two months at that time.
0: More recently, have you seen anything happen?
1: Well... My standard answer to this is that I've heard things, I've felt things, I've smelled things, and I've had things moved on me. But I never personally have seen anything myself, although there are other people who have. We have reports literally in a kind of a nonstop train since 1933. And I'm trying to remember, this was in the late 80s. And I was closing up one day um, on a Sunday afternoon, and it was uh, in October, uh, and it had been a very warm day, so the windows were open, it was a sunny day, it was really beautiful. And uh, on a Sunday, my responsibility at the time was to make sure that everybody left, so you kept track of who was in the house, and and then just close up for the night, and, and that would be the end of it. And um, I started closing from the ground floor and working my way up to the third floor bedroom space, which is now the offices, because that's where my things were. And I figured I'd just work my way up the stairs and then gather my things, set the alarm, and leave. And when I got to the master bedroom floor, which is the second floor of the of the museum of the building, uh, I glanced into Mrs. Treadwell's bedroom as I was walking down the hall towards the front of the building, and everything looked just the way it should. Windows were actually wide open because it had been such a, a warm day. Uh, and late afternoon, light was streaming in through the, through the windows. And I walked to the front of the building um, and closed up Mr. Treadwell's bedroom and the uh, study right next to it. And closing up means closing the interior shutters all the way and bolting them and then turning off the lights, closing the door behind me and you know packing up for the night. When I walked down a small interior connecting private hallway which connected the two master bedrooms, they had separate bedrooms in those days, uh, and I walked into Mrs. Treadwell's bedroom What had just been a wide open room, 45 seconds before, maybe a minute before, how long does it take to close some shutters, um, was now shut up tight and closed and bolted and the lights turned off and the door to the outside hallway were closed. And that was the door I had just glanced in, maybe a minute before. So someone helped me close up the house. Uh, Now I was young, I was impressionable, and this was the first thing that had ever happened to me uh... so i just remember kind of croaking out thank you gertrude and i got out of the building as fast as i could i said okay something really is going on in this place um, and so i got interested and i'm the type of person that starts asking questions and starts talking to people so i started saying "Has anything ever happened to you have you ever noticed anything strange and um that's kind of when the dam broke and the the unspoken code of silence you know, fell apart, and we started admitting that things really were going on. You know, after a while, so many things start happening. um, You get used to it, and you start talking to them, too. I mean, I always walk in, and I say, hello, good morning, good afternoon to the Treadwells. Uh, When I walk in, when I leave, I say, good evening, have a nice night. Thank you for sharing your home, Uh, because in essence, it really does feel as if we're sharing a place of residence, that it's a museum for us or a place of work or a place of volunteer activity, and it seems as if the Treadwells are still living there.
0: So why do you think that they're still around? Why haven't they left?
1: You know, there's a lot of theories about this. Uh, The museum is never going to come right right out and say, we're haunted. All we can say is that something really unexplainable, Uh, one theory is that the Treadwells just love the house so much that they've never wanted to leave. It's beautiful. The people walk in the front door and they take one look at it and they say, I want to join, I want to become a volunteer, I want to give you money, I want to help in any way I can. This house is beautiful, I love this house. And maybe the Treadwells felt that way too. Another possibility, and I sort of tend to lean in this direction myself personally, but again it's only just personal predilection, is um if einstein's right and time is not linear then basically everything is happening at the same time that's sort of you know the idea behind it in quantum physics and all that sort of stuff um the treadwells could very well be living their lives at the same time that we're busy you know, fundraising or giving special lectures or musical performances or something like that. And because the house is so similar in so many ways to the way it's always been, there may be times when we just collide, when we just overlap. And they may be seeing us at the same time we're seeing them and just as freaked out about us as we are of them. Are these ghosts friendly then? It doesn't seem like they're trying to drive anyone
0: out of the museum. It just seems like they're doing very basic, normal things.
1: Uh, yeah, the ghosts are friendly. Or or um, we, we've actually had some friendly encounters with them. There was a report by a woman who was visiting the museum on a, a summer day who had a conversation with an elderly gentleman uh, up in Mr. Treadwell's bedroom uh, who started explaining some of the family history to her, the Treadwell family history. About halfway through the conversation, he started referring to people in the present tense and talking about um, the men who built the house and telling her that he knew him very well, that the house had been built in 1832, so this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And um, She became a bit alarmed because she thought that maybe he was not um, you know, safe, uh, maybe shouldn't be in the museum to begin with, or maybe needed to be escorted someplace where he could be observed. And as she turned to uh, ask her, her boyfriend and her son for assistance and then turned back, he was gone. And uh, they made it down to the main floor, the parlor floor, and she heard the front door click, unlatch, and there he was. And he said, you come back and visit us again. And with that, he closed the door and walked out uh, the front of the museum, the front of the house, and she ran to the windows and looked out, and there was nobody there. She then reported this to the museum, uh, and they said, well, you know, we've had a lot of reports of a woman being sighted, but very few reports of a man. Uh, and said, do you think you would recognize him if you saw a photograph of him? And she said, I think I would. I had quite a conversation with him. And they showed her photos of the family. And there was um, Gertrude's younger, youngest brother, older than she, but youngest brother, Samuel. And that was who she'd had the conversation with. And it was a very uh, um, pleasant, congenial conversation.
0: So it sounds like a lot of people at the museum have had some sort of encounter, but are there any skeptics who work there, or who volunteer there, who just haven't seen anything or have but refuse to believe that it's anything paranormal?
1: I would say that the museum staff and volunteers, volunteers in particular, definitely lie into camps. No, not everyone has experienced something. Even people who are very um, willing to embrace the fact that strange things are going on have not had personal experiences. But we have photographs. We have recordings of of disembodied voices that nobody heard and then are speaking very clearly in the recording. We even have a recording of the piano playing, and the piano's not playable or wasn't playable. We've had it restored, but we don't touch it. Um, Then there are those who are really kind of adamant that this is all just so much malarkey, And um, certainly there's nobody making anything up. Nobody's inventing these things. Uh, We even had the house tested for electrical uh, current leakage because that could contribute towards hallucinations or something like that. And in fact, the house is extremely well-wired. It was rewired in the 70s, and it's not leaking current or causing people to see things. So there are people who really just don't want to talk about it, And then there are people who really want something to happen to them very badly, and nothing has happened. And then there's people who are just minding their own business, and either visitors or passers-by or staff or volunteers, and then just the strangest thing. you know, They hear somebody singing in a room, and they open the door, and there's nobody in it. Thanks to Anthony Bella for talking to me about the Merchant's House Museum.
0: For more information about the museum, visit merchantshouse.org. I'm Chris Williams on 90.7 WFUV, speaking about the afterlife on Earth. My next guest is Fordham University Professor Mary Erler, who tells us about a place on Earth that people in the Middle Ages believed was a pit stop on the way to
2: heaven. The earthly paradise has a lot of interesting aspects. Um, one way of thinking about it is to say that it changes the traditional three-part division hell, purgatory, heaven, the way that we think about what happens after death, into 3 four parts instead of three. And so you have hell, purgatory, earthly paradise, and heaven. And earthly paradise is kind of the antechamber to heaven. It's where you wait and look forward to the real thing.
0: So when did people start believing in the earthly paradise? Like when does it first start popping up in in certain texts or in um, certain time periods?
2: It's really early. There are a number of 4th and 5th century latin texts that suggest this idea and then in the middle ages from about the 12th to the 14th century there are translations of that those latin texts into various vernaculars english french and others as well and people begin to think more and more seriously about what a place like this would look like
0: so what would it look like
2: mm-hmm. There are certain common features. The the earthly paradise always is kind of a heightened version of the most beautiful natural landscape that you've ever seen. There are birds, but they're multicolored birds. There are grasses and trees, but they're fantastically lovely. In one Middle English poem, Pearl, the trees have blue trunks and silver leaves, and part of the pleasure is the sound that the silver leaves make as they rattle against each other. There are always flowers, there are always pleasant smells, and sometimes, pretty often, there's a vision across some kind of natural divide, like water or a mountain, uh, a vision into heaven, the real thing.
0: So if someone wanted to travel to the earthly paradise, how would they go about doing this? Is Are normal modes of transportation, will they do the trick, or is there mm-hmm. s- there's some sort of other element to it?
2: That's another interesting feature. Uh, the earthly paradise is pretty much always, not exclusively, but often found in the East. And it's thought of as being the remnant of the paradise that Adam and Eve lived in before the fall. And so, partly the interest in the earthly paradise is geographical. Would it be possible to explore for Westerners what is the very unknown eastern geographical regions and find the actual spot where Adam and Eve lived before they were cast out of the garden? So, in some ways, interest in the earthly paradise is like um, interest in an early form of travel literature. Could one get there? Perhaps so. Perhaps um, a fantasy journey uh, could be undertaken, and perhaps the location could actually be discovered. Like, for instance, there's always been interest in finding exactly where Noah's Ark ended up after the flood. The mountain on which Noah's Ark was stranded, kind of the same interest as where is the earthly paradise.
0: So people who go to the earthly paradise, are they alive or are they dead? Or is it even, can we even make that distinction? Is it something completely other?
2: In the literary, in the literary, um, in the poems in which people go to the earthly paradise, they are alive and these are dream journeys and they return sadly always and reluctantly. And necessarily, because what they're always told at the end of this exploration is that they're not ready yet, and they must come back and go through the process of earthly life that ends with earthly death, and that then they will finally be able to achieve the real thing.
0: Did people in the Middle Ages believe that the earthly paradise actually existed as they would maybe believe in heaven or hell? Or was the idea of an earthly paradise more of a fantasy?
2: Um, it, it kind of spans both of those. When the earthly paradise has an earthly gate, that is when you can locate the spot that gives you entree, uh, in, in some poems, uh, that spot becomes a pilgrimage uh, destination. And from about the 12th century, for instance, uh, there's a a pilgrimage spot near a lake on an Irish island, La Derg, which is said to be the spot at which Sir Owen was able to enter on his supernatural journey. So pilgrims start to go there. It it becomes, um, as perhaps pilgrimage always was in the Middle Ages, half a sort of enjoyable vacation trip and half um, a religiously oriented move.
0: So kind of going off of that, was it possible that people would go to some tropical place that they mm-hmm. would be very different from what they're used to and, and think that it was the earthly paradise?
2: Um, not so much tropical in the literature as as um, Eastern. And, and certainly, as you imply, exotic. Uh, you know, I'm sure that If people, like Marco Polo, for instance, did manage to make it to the Far East, that having this literature in mind, they might look around and say, I wonder if this is the earthly paradise.
0: A lot of Christians today, they subscribe to the belief that there's a heaven, a hell, and some people believe that there's a purgatory, but we don't really hear much about this earthly paradise now. Why do you think it's kind of fallen out of the tradition?
2: One reason is that it was actually formally condemned by the Second Council of Lyon in 1274. Uh, The council endorsed the notion of purgatory, and it kind of specifically rejected the notion of the earthly paradise. But really, that didn't stop fantasists or literary people from continuing to write about and think about this option. Uh, it, It drops out of theology. you know, It's not part of the church's official teaching, but it lives on in fantasy.
0: That was Fordham University Professor Mary Erler talking about the earthly paradise. Next, I spoke with Professor Joshua Shapiro about the Buddhist belief of reincarnation. When someone is reincarnated, are they reborn on Earth, or are there other places that they can go or be reborn or exist in their next life?
3: In the Buddhist tradition, and for the most part, overlapping with what we call the Hindu tradition, you are going to most likely be reborn on Earth, but you can be reborn in a whole bunch of different forms. So the most common form, I wouldn't say this is the most common outcome, but what we, we might think about is one being reincarnated as another human being in either a higher social status or a lower social status, either in a richer family or a poor family or whatever it might, might be. Um, But of course, that's not it. One can also be reincarnated as any one level of animal, which again depends on one's actions and the quality of one's actions. One can be reborn into different realms that we would call God realms or heavens, so not the place where one singular monotheistic God lives, but rather the place where many powerful divinities live. One could be reborn as as such a God with certain powers. One could also be reborn in different hells, or one could be reborn as what's called hungry ghosts, which are beings who wander around always looking for food or water and even if they find food or water can never be satiated. So this is just one description of the different realms one can end up in. I listed five, there's a sixth that we don't need to add here now. Um, So yeah, the possibility of rebirth is kind of multiple. Now. It seems as the Buddhist tradition develops, there start to be ideas or further development of ideas about other universes. So in fact, there are essentially infinite number of universes where there are people practicing the Dharma, which means people practicing Buddhist teachings, trying to overcome suffering and the like. And so there's no reason why one couldn't be reborn into another one of those realms. But really it doesn't matter because one doesn't get reborn as a human being so that you can come back and visit your family members so that you can come back and relive the fun you had in the past lifetime reincarnation isn't a concept at least the way it's articulated in Buddhist tradition it's not a form of happy reunions because in fact being reincarnated brings with it suffering which is pervasive in all of our lives So I would say from one perspective, the issue of where one is reborn in terms of worlds doesn't even matter. What's important is whether or not one gets another shot at being a human being. And why it's so productive in the Hindu tradition particularly, or forms of the Hindu tradition, but particularly in the Buddhist traditions, why it's so important to be reborn as a human being is that gives you another opportunity to practice the Buddhist teachings which gives you another opportunity to improve yourself as a more compassionate considerate human being but it also gives you another opportunity to escape the whole rat race It gives you another opportunity to escape the whole process of performing actions that yield effects that yield reincarnation and so the ultimate goal as articulated in the Buddhist tradition is to escape this entire game And that's what we commonly know as liberation or awakening. In our culture, we usually call it enlightenment. The idea that, in fact, through certain practices, through certain meditations, through certain processes of learning, you can just stop the entire process of reincarnation. So on the one hand, I think there's a certain allure to thinking about and learning about the possibility of being reborn. Oh, after we die this lifetime, don't worry, there's good news, we come back. How wonderful especially if next lifetime we'll come back as something really exciting. Or maybe we can remember our past lives where we were someone really important, even if in this lifetime we feel like we have a very mundane life. It sounds kind of sexy and almost like a Hollywood story, right? But rather, the tone of the Buddhist teachings is quite the opposite, which is to say this is a problem that we're always reborn. Trust me, you don't want to be reborn in hell or a hungry ghost realm. But even if you're reborn in an as a human being, while it's wonderful because it gives you an opportunity to practice the teachings, it's going to bring with it heartbreak, physical pain, mental pain, and various forms of suffering.
0: So unlike more traditional you know, Christian ideas of the afterlife where either you're punished or you're rewarded, is even then fair to classify reincarnation as an afterlife? Because it's just life that keeps happening.
3: I think that's a really nice distinction you're making. Yeah, The uh, concept of afterlife is probably not appropriate because generally speaking, of course, as always, for anything we're talking about, there's going to be some diversity because you have millions of, or billions of people living in Asia over history with quite different ideas. But particularly in Buddhist communities, especially amongst the philosophers who theorize how this material works, the idea is that We've always been around generating karma and coming back to life after life after life. And always means always. There's no beginning, and therefore there'll be no end. So from one perspective, it seems quite nice. We have this lifetime, and then we have an afterlife. We have this lifetime, and then we have another opportunity. We have this lifetime, and now we're rewarded in, let's say, the kingdom of heaven. Whereas for Buddhists, it's much more an exhausting proposal, right? This life the next life, the next life, and on and on.
0: So you mentioned before that reincarnation really isn't about reuniting with family members or loved ones, but future lives, is it possible to reconnect with people who we know from other lives?
3: So, sure, I can think of a couple ways of approaching this. So one thing I should mention is that there's, again, a diversity of perspectives that real human beings have taken in Asia on these issues. So, for example, in Japan, there's one form of Buddhism, that has become quite popular. It's not exclusively Japanese, but it became quite popular in Japan over the last thousand years, which has to do with chanting the name of a certain spiritual hero. And if one chants the spiritual hero's name, name Amida, one gets reborn into his heaven, into this heavenly realm where he, where he teaches. There are different reasons why it's a good thing to be reborn in this realm. One, it's a pleasant place to be. In some of the teachings, it's taught that if one is reborn in this heaven, it's much easier to get liberated or enlightened. But it also seems to be the case that if one is reborn into this heavenly realm, in that heavenly realm, one might meet one's family members and one's loved ones who also have been chanting the name of this whole spiritual being. And therefore, part of the glory of this heavenly realm is, in fact, one is surrounded by one's family members. And throughout Asia, not only in Japan, there is a great emphasis on making offerings to one's ancestors, maintaining some kind of an intimate connection, helping along one's ancestors once they've died, which is just one way in which we can recognize that there are really complex layers of ideas about what happens after after one dies. And these complex layers of ideas don't always mesh perfectly together as is the case in all human ideas, all human religious traditions. So yeah, there are ways in which one can think about reincarnation as a vehicle for, again, reuniting with family members. Whether that's the dominant conception or not, I would say it probably is not, but it is present. So the other way thing I might mention is that what's often emphasized, and this happens a lot in the Tibetan tradition, which I focus on, is observations about what we call karmic connections. Karma, again, just the actions that you perform that lead to effects in the future. But there's an idea in which if we collectively perform actions together, those actions are kind of collectively yield effects. So one example is, Chris, you and I having this conversation today might yield some effect in the future where ten lifetimes from now, we have another similar conversation about the outcome of future lives. This is what we call a karmic connection. Karma connections are most important in the teachings in a way that's probably not so surprising when you think about your experiences with teachers, which is why it tends to be so important to have a good experience and a respectful interaction with teachers, just monks and the like. Because if one is respectful to them, if one makes offerings to them, one gives them food or honor or money to help to support these teachers one can see how in a future lifetime you might be reunited and you would again have the opportunity to learn about the Buddhist teachings from that teacher so in that way sure, absolutely, our common actions together collectively in the present in a way bind us together so the karmic uh, process of cause and effect is a way of binding human beings together the way we'd say our fates are in- intertwined for that reason. Sure.
0: My thanks to Professor Shapiro for talking about the cycle of reincarnation. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next in WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.